This episode of Ask Science Mike was made possible with support from Pinatagrams. Why send a letter when you can send a beautiful pinata instead? Go to pinatagrams.com to learn more. And by SaneBox. Master the jungle that is your email in just 25 minutes by visiting sanebox.com slash science mic. Cynicism, beauty, and a simulated universe. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. He's got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them. But I'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Happy July 4th, everybody. So good to be back with you after a brief hiatus. I want to let you know that this week, yes, this week, I'll be at the Wild Goose Festival on July 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th. We'll do a live Ask Science Mike. We'll do a Liturgist podcast. I hope to see you there, but for now, we've got a show to do. Let's get it started. Before we start questions this week, I want to tell you a little story (laughs) about why I missed the last two weeks of the show, which was completely unplanned, and frankly, um, the timing, it would have been hard to have the timing be worse to have two weeks off the air, Uh, but a strange thing happened. If you listen to the Liturgist podcast, or especially the Liturgist Conversations podcast, which Michael and I do on the Liturgist podcast off-season for our uh, supporters on Patreon over there. You heard that I lost my voice and that I fell down some steps and broke my leg. Well, breaking my leg usually won't cancel the show, <laughs> although I had a lot of travel and, and trying to fit medical visits in with, with cross-country flights is tough. Uh, but something a little more serious happened. I was in the recording studio to record the audiobook for my upcoming book, Finding God in the Ways, which of course means yes, there will be an audiobook, and yes, I will be the narrator. But I was having a hard time keeping my voice. I was also having a strangely itchy, painful scalp, and then toward the end of the recording session, my ear started to swell up like a red balloon. It was really strange. My throat started to hurt really bad, so I went to an urgent care center over there, and they diagnosed me with an ear infection and uh, gave me some medicine, and it didn't help. So I came back home, and I went to an urgent care center here, and they sent me to the emergency room because it turned out I had like a bacterial infection, uh, maybe even MRSA in the flesh, the tissue of my ear, scalp, and neck, and I got put on these crazy uh, IV antibiotics. And uh, the joke the doctor made was, if it was your leg, we could just amputate if we needed to, but this is your head. And I got to be honest, um, I learned in a real visceral way something that used to be academic. I've always known that bacteria run this planet, but it wasn't until they took over my body that I realized how true that is, because I got to tell you, I felt awful. And the pills I was taking that would kill the bacteria in my head also killed all the bacteria in my gut and all over my body. And I felt terrible. So I really felt too sick and too weak 
uh, and frankly, a little bit too depressed to record the show, which was another fascinating insight for me is um, the degree to which throwing off the balance of bugs, bacteria in my gut completely affected my mood and how I felt about life. Fascinating stuff. Now, so that's why I was off the show for uh, or off the air for two weeks. Here's why that was a bad thing. <laughs> because we launched the official pre-order campaign for my book. And that I was supposed to have this big podcast to talk about it and tell you this exciting news. And instead, I just laid on the couch and felt like a slug. <laughs> so if, if you would just uh, do me a favor and listen for a second before we jump into the questions, I am genuinely super excited about this. So my book comes out September 13th. It's called Finding God in the Waves. And if you go to FindingGodInTheWaves.com, you can get more information about the book as well as links to a bunch of places you can pre-order it. Now, you would say, Mike, the book comes out in September. Why on earth would I pre-order your book in July? Well, we've put together some cool stuff for you, and we're going to announce new bonuses and new exclusive content for people who pre-order every month in the month leading up to the release of the book. And the first thing we've announced is once a month, we're going to draw a name of someone who pre-ordered the book, and we're going to send them a pre-release copy of the book and schedule a one-on-one -on -one call with me for 30 minutes to talk about the book. So if you, A, want to get the book early, and B, would like to have a one-on-one -on -one call with me to talk about the book, you can. All you've got to do is go to FindingGodInTheWaves.com and click on one of the retailer links, buy the book, and then come back to that website and give us your order number in a form we've got on the website. Uh, that will also go ahead and get you registered for all the other pre-order bonuses that are coming and that I will announce in upcoming episodes of the show. I'm also super excited. We're not announcing the dates yet, but we are doing a book tour with a lot of stops all across the country. Uh, it's mainly going to be an Ask Science Mike live tour, so we're going to bring the podcast from city to city to city to city. Uh, and I'm really excited about that. Fall is going to be completely packed with live shows. As you know, they're my favorite. Now, the two dates we've announced so far are for the Liturgist Gathering. I think that's September 16th and 17th in Denver and October 20th and 21st in Chicago. Uh, so those are going to be official stops on the book tour, but you'll get the bonus of seeing Michael and Lisa Gunger and uh, a few hundred other uh, very cool people with the liturgist. So tickets are already on sale for the liturgist gathering in Denver and Chicago. Um, now it's summer and you're thinking that's way in the fall. Why should I worry about it? Well, tickets are selling really, really well in Chicago. I think that one's going to sell out well in advance and tickets are selling solidly uh, in Denver. Uh, so go ahead and buy those tickets. Go ahead and, and ensure that you'll be at the Liturgist Gathering if you've been thinking about it in Denver and Chicago. Those will be the only Liturgist appearances for the remainder of this year. Okay? So, sorry for taking two weeks off. I'm feeling a lot better now, and I'm really excited to see all of you who will be there at Wild Goose this week. So there'll be a live Liturgist podcast and live Ask Science Mike at Wild Goose, and I hope to see you there. Hey, Science Mike, I have a question for you about the simulation argument. 
It's a philosophical concept that was codified in an academic article written in 2003 called Are You Living in a Computer Simulation by Nick Bostrom, who's an Oxford philosopher. In its most basic form, the argument posits that our reality is in fact a computer simulation ran by advanced humans. The idea recently came back into the popular consciousness after Elon Musk stated he believed there is a strong possibility the simulation argument is correct. And since then, several outlets such as Vox and The New Yorker have run articles on the subject. So it's kind of a big deal again. My question is, what are your thoughts on the plausibility of the simulation argument? And if it is hypothetically plausible, what do you think are its implications for our lives? If we aren't living in capital R reality, are we faced with a, if God is not, all things are permitted, a la Dostoevsky scenario? Do we continue to strive to seek after justice and purpose, despite everything not actually existing in the sense we first believed it did? Um, Does the simulation argument mean that everything doesn't really matter? Thanks for everything that you do, and I look forward to hearing your response. I knew at some point computer simulation hypothesis or universe simulation hypothesis would make it on the show. I have just been waiting. And so finally, finally, someone asked the question. The first thing I would like to clarify about Nick Bostrom's idea of simulation theory is um, its scope. The argument is not that we are living in a computer. Uh, Bostrom's argument is a little more subtle His philosophical case is that one of three things is true, or at least one. One, that the human species is very likely to go extinct before reaching a post-human stage. Two, that any post-human civilization is extremely unlikely to run a significant number of simulations of their evolutionary history. Or three, we are almost certainly living in a computer simulation. Now, the idea here is that uh, we now have the ability to create virtual worlds and software. We can do that now. They're pretty primitive. They're simple, but we can do it. So if you imagine our ability to continue to scale that up, perhaps even in the Ray Kurzweil singularity theory, uh, to begin to put ourselves into those simulations, therefore becoming post-human, if it's possible then we're probably living in a computer simulation. Civilizations run simulations of themselves. Yeah, it's it, it, first of all, is it is it plausible? Totally. Absolutely it's plausible that we're living in a simulation. Uh, our reality in many ways looks like a simulated reality. Uh, it's very fascinating to me that there's such a thing as the Planck volume. It seems that there is uh, Planck time. There are, are units beyond which we don't believe time or space can be further subdivided, which creates a finite granularity, which is something that's essential to do computation. There's a controlled interaction speed between these individual units. Information only propagates at C, the speed of light, the constant. Uh, And as far as we can tell, our observable universe has a finite volume. Um, so finite volume would be another requisite for a simulation. Uh, now we, we get indicators that our universe is spatially infinite or has the potential to be, but you could simulate that with math and just simulate part of it and call it the observable universe and, um, control the boundaries of that using, uh, light speed. 
and redshift, right? You create these boundaries so that what seems to be spatially infinite for the case of your mathematics has a finite volume. I probably lost a significant number of people right there. I, <laughs> sorry, I got a little lost with myself. Uh, but here's the thing. If it's, if it's possible, if it's plausible, the, we're living in a simulation. Some people would argue mathematically that it's more likely we're in a simulation than in ultimate reality. Uh, and here's why. How likely is it we, that we would be the first? If it's possible to simulate universes, it's more likely for any perceived universe to be a simulation than to be the original universe. Now, what do I think about that? I don't know. We, I don't think we have enough data to make a determination, which is also what Nick Bostrom says. He says there's not enough data to make a call, although, honestly, some cosmologists have been devising uh, clever means with which you could test if the universe is a simulation or not. Um, pretty wild stuff. Now, for a lot of people, this raises all sorts of ethical questions and quandaries, right? If you're a traditional theist... Uh, Judeo-Christian theist, and you think morality comes from God, and it turns out, you know, God, the creator of everything, is some computer scientist, and we're running in a cosmological version of uh, VMware or some emulation package. What does that mean for us? Does it mean life is meaningless? Does it mean that morality doesn't matter? We should do it if we want. Well, I've kind of already been down that road of where morality comes from when I lost my faith and became an atheist. Um, so the way I make moral and ethical determinations continues to be influenced by my experience with atheism. You know, there's the argument you can't have law without a lawgiver, and I just disagree. I just disagree with that statement a lot. <laughs> uh, we can decide that we're going to band together and not have to experience some things, right? I don't want to be murdered. And because I don't want to be murdered, we can all agree that it's immoral to murder other people. Uh, I don't want people to steal stuff from my house. So then we all band together and say, you know what? I don't want people to steal stuff from my house either. And we create this social construct that says it's illegal to steal things from people's houses. And if you do, there's some sort of punishment or, or, or some punitive function. Um, and that's a perfectly adequate way to create ethics and morality. So if it turns out we're actually living in a simulation, it doesn't change my day-to-day -day life at all. I still try to leave this simulation better than I found it. And because I'm having this lived experience uh, our subjectivity exists inside the simulation, which to me is not materially different than if our subjective experience lived in some more ultimate reality. So we live the same way. Now, but if we figure out for sure we are in a computer, then of course I would think on a societal level, it would matter a lot uh, to try to communicate with that simulator. <laughs> to see what the goal is, what the purpose is, to see if there are inexpensive ways from their perspective to materially improve our lives here in the simulation, that all kind of crazy stuff would come up there. But I don't think it suddenly creates a morality isn't relevant because the way I derive morality and ethics is what kind of experiences our actions produce for other people. 
and whether our actions are real or simulated, I don't actually see a huge difference. Either way, our experiences are emerging from more base phenomena, and whether those are actual physical particles uh, that are, you know, uh, in the manifestation of energy fields, or whether those energy fields are just math running on computer hardware, uh, it doesn't matter. Our lived experience is the same way regardless, and it matters that we treat each other well. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hello, Mike. Greetings from Germany. I have a rather elaborate question concerning physical human beauty. From a scientific viewpoint, why is human beauty comparatively rare? From what I've read, there exist three different kinds of standards. One, the beauty ideals created by culture, which seem to favor traits correlated with status, Fat people in society with food shortages. Fit people in societies with an abundance of food and leisure. Two, general beauty standards associated with human preference traits such as symmetry, purity, or youthfulness. And three, subjective preferences. But I wonder, why is it that humanity evolved to value beauty standards which usually exclude the majority of members? Or in other words, Why is it that people perceive the attractiveness of the majority of sex partners as average or below average? Wouldn't it be more advantageous to have a perspective from which we perceive the majority of sex partners as attractive? In even simpler terms, why do most people find so many potential sex partners visually unappealing, especially from a male point of view? It just seems unfair to me as a man When I look at how I look at women, how I judge the majority of them is visually non-attractive. Apart from feeling rather arrogant, isn't that an evolutionary disadvantage? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Sorry for the long question. I find it hard to frame the problem adequately. Also, I don't want to miss the opportunity to say thank you for your podcast, your work with the liturgists, and the amazing knowledge and honesty with which you share your thoughts and stories. All the best, Chris. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for uh, a really honest question. (laughs) Frankly, one that I haven't been asked ever on the show that question or anything like it. So I love new and original questions. Thank you for that. Uh, Your question seems to be centered primarily, ow. (laughs) I just hit my hand on the desk really hard. Non-viable organism. Anyway, hope oh, that's probably going to bruise. Okay, sorry. Uh, I, I wave my hands wildly while I stand here and record the podcast, and sometimes I get injured. So anyway, it's a really good question. And your question centers around not like philosophical beauty or art or nature, but uh, mainly around why we find people attractive. So let's kind of start by understanding a little bit more about what humans uh, find attractive about each other and see if in that process... We can illuminate more of your question about uh, the amounts of people we find attractive on a case-by-case basis. So uh, as you mentioned, there are some really consistent markers for human beauty across all known human cultures. Symmetric faces are viewed as more beautiful universally. And even for people that haven't been influenced by socialization yet, like babies, 
babies stare at symmetric faces longer than less symmetric faces, or I should say more symmetric faces. Uh, I don't think there's any such thing as a perfectly symmetric face. Clear skin is universally regarded across cultures. High cheekbones in women, universally regarded as attractive. Square jaws in men, universally regarded as attractive across cultures. Now, I'm not saying every single individual, I'm saying, but as an aggregate of cultural preferences, these things are always viewed as attractive. Men almost universally prefer women with higher voices and women almost universally prefer lower voices in men, a fact for which I am very, very grateful. I think my voice helped me win over the honey badger. Now, the preferred build for women varies in different cultures. Um, some cultures like women that are, are thicker, some like them thinner, uh, but a similar waist-to-hip ratio is consistent across cultures. So as the waist thickens, the hips thicken as well uh, to create that same ratio. Remarkably shallow creatures we are uh, when it comes to sizing up potential mates. Now, socialization certainly plays a role. You see incredible variations in preferences regarding skin color, pale versus tan, uh, of course, fashion cues, right? One culture might find a, a red dress with a low neckline riveting, while another may find uh, metal rings that elongate the neck to be irresistible. And social cues vary enormously to the point that masculine and feminine roles aren't set in stone at all across cultures. Uh, some men in some cultures would be very effeminate by Western standards, and some women would be very masculine by Western standards, which illustrates the degree to which our uh, behavioral signaling tends to be very associated with culture and not innate biology. Now, that kind of says what we find attractive. It doesn't say why, as you said in your question, many people find the majority of members of the sex they're attracted to unattractive. Well, let's see if we can learn a couple of things there. One, some sociologists believe we tend to seek out a partner that we think is about as attractive as we are. So if you view yourself as average, you're going to try to find a partner who you think is about as average looking as you are. If you think you're very attractive, you're probably going to try all things being equal, which they are not, a very attractive partner. If you think you are unattractive, you will probably try to find an unattractive mate. Um, that's one sociological theory. Of course, scent plays a role too. Uh, monthly fertility cycles, um, birth control pills can even influence that. Something as simple as the smell of sweat that signals uh, immunocompatibility plays a huge role in attraction for both men and for women. So if you find yourself uh, thinking most people are not visually attractive, maybe you have a really picky nose. Maybe you view yourself as very attractive. Maybe you have conditioned yourselves or been conditioned by your culture to be very critical. Now, here's why I mentioned that. My subjective experience could not be more different. Uh, when I was a single man, I fell in love a thousand times a day. 
I just found I am heterosexual, um, and I found something alluring and interesting in pretty much every woman I saw all the time. They, women were just a source of unending fascination and attraction for me. So I had, I had completely the opposite experience with you, whereas I found, I found most women to be visually attractive, an overwhelming majority. Now, as I've gotten older and I'm strongly pair-bonded, that experience has changed in that I'm no longer, uh, I no longer process women at first blush as potential mates. That's no longer the part of my brain I'm using. Uh, but I've also found in that process, uh, my appreciation for others has deepened. Now, now I just think every woman is beautiful. And as I've gotten older, I've started to sometimes think that men are striking. I was in New York last week. And um, just I noticed how, how beautiful everyone looked, men and women. What I'm getting at, I'm not just meaning to ramble here about being old. What I'm getting at is I think our outlook on life and the way that we ruminate on others affects the way that we judge the appearance of other people. So perhaps if you would spend some time in gracious contemplation of others, uh, take a longer look at people. And see the thing about them which is unique and beautiful and radiant. You might start to recondition yourself to be less selective if that is an issue that matters to you. You know, I try to avoid judging other people as much as I can. And I find that to be freeing and life-giving and affirming. And I don't know the the spirit of your question. I don't know if you're asking because you're frustrated or if you're just curious. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but if you're if you're having some stress, I would say practice looking at people with eyes of love. I would dare say, even with the eyes of God, if you're if you're a God person, if you're if you're a person that believes in God. More than anything, my views on the attractiveness of other people changed after my experience on the beach where I felt like uh, I, I met God directly and felt God's love for me and God's love for others. And I've continued to feel that sense of love and connection with other people. And that does affect the way my eyes see them. Now for me, who cares? I'm an old married guy and uh, happy with it. But I do wonder if I was still younger, single, and dating, what those eyes of love would mean for how I encounter other people. And Chris, maybe you could find out. I'm so thankful for the sponsors of Ask Science Mike and wow do I have the most fun thing to tell you about this week with our sponsors. Uh, you know I love Pinatagrams. It's a way that you can go to pinatagrams.com, fill out a form, put in your credit card number, and they mail a miniature pinata to somebody. It's amazing. 
that was recently featured in the Huffington Post. Uh, incredibly exciting stuff. Uh, but they've expanded their product offerings. It used to be a traditional pinata, like a little uh, donkey, you know, rainbow-colored donkey. It was really cute. But they've, they've expanded now with minipolitics.com. You can send a miniature Donald Trump to someone. I think there, there's a there's a Hillary Clinton, too, but she's out of stock. But the miniature pinata Donald Trump is hilarious. I don't want to get too political. I guess you could go either way. If you're a Trump supporter, you could send someone to Trump uh, full of candy. Or if you're frustrated about the prospect of Donald Trump becoming president, you can send someone a tiny Donald Trump that they can smash and get candy. It's hilarious. I just think it's adorable and hilarious. So pinatagrams.com for their traditional pinata product or minipolitics.com, and you can send a pinata Donald Trump. I love it. Pinatagrams.com for more information. I also want to tell you about SaneBox. I've been traveling so much, email would have been impossible. It would have been impossible. But I've got SaneBox, and SaneBox every day, every moment, every minute is going through my email and taking out all the unimportant stuff. Not spam, newsletters order confirmations, the kinds of things that clog up our email box. Well, SaneBox takes those out of the equation and puts them in a special folder you can look at later and keeps your inbox about the people you know and the tasks you need to take care of. SaneBox works with any email program and almost any email service provider. You don't have to install a new app. You don't have to change your email address. It works with what you have today. SaneBox will give you 20% off your subscription if you go to sanebox.com slash sciencemike to sign up for a free trial. Absolutely no risk and absolutely no obligation. I recommend Sanebox to everybody. Check it out today. Sanebox.com slash sciencemike. Hey, Mike. Uh, my name is Nathan, and I just want to say first off, thanks for the show. I really appreciate it. It's been a big weekly encouragement to me living in a very conservative fundamentalist uh, small town in the South, and uh, I just really appreciate it. Um, I wanted to ask about the science of cynicism. As my faith has changed, disappeared, been deconstructed, any of those terms, um, I have found myself becoming a lot more cynical towards specifically Christians in the area that I live, but really anywhere. And as someone who has kind of redeveloped uh, a faith in Jesus now, uh, I still find myself uh, as a Sunday morning Christian looking around sometimes and struggling to not think cynical, negative thoughts about the people around me. Uh, things like, oh, they're just doing this for show or, you know, they're faking that. They can't really be having any sort of emotional reaction, you know, stuff like that. And I know that some of the people that I'm thinking of aren't faking anything like that. And uh, I'm just really kind of wondering what about my brain causes me to think that way. Um, I know that I am much more cynical than some of my friends. Uh, and so I'd, I'm sure that, you know, different people's brains make them maybe more inclined to that. I don't know. Just kind of spitballing here. 
sorry for the long pauses and lots of ums and uhs. Thanks again for all you do. I look forward to your answer. Don't worry too much about ums and uhs and pauses on Ask Science Mike because the Canadian wizard Greg Nordine makes me sound smarter all the time and he does the same for your questions. So if you're like me and you listen to your voice and you're like, wow, I don't remember sounding that smart or concise or put together. You didn't. Greg is a genius and (laughs) he's helping you out like he helps me. Um, So that out of the way, boy, do I know where you're coming from. Boy, do I know where you are coming from. Cynicism is the language of our age. It is the thing in the air. Let's start by describing specifically what cynicism is so we can talk about it, and then we can talk about what to do about it. So cynicism is an attitude or state of mind characterized by a general distrust of others' motives. So what you're describing being at church and looking at other people's behaviors and thinking, man, they can't really be feeling that. They must be faking or posturing or putting on a display for others. That is textbook cynicism. Absolutely textbook cynicism. And what I understand by studying a little bit of psychology this week uh, is that cynics are made, not born. So there may be possible genetic factors and certainly cognitive risk factors. But in general, cynicism is a response to trauma or pain. I'm going to say that again. Cynicism is a response to trauma or pain. You see, a cynic had hopes or dreams that crashed, and they use cynicism to protect themselves from further disappointment. This means cynicism plays a major role in burnouts, you know, both becoming burnout in the first place and the aftermath of being burnout are both deeply tied to cynicism, an attempt to not be hurt again. So you maybe had some hope or some dream for what religion meant or what your church could do in the world or what your faith could mean or who God was or whatever, and it didn't work out. In fact, it crashed. It went sideways. It went wrong, and it hurt. And your brain is designed to try to avoid that kind of pain. You see, the problem is cynics are so often right. They have the data on their side because the cynic says, you know, we tried it and it didn't work. A cynic says people always look out for themselves. People only care about their appearances. People are selfish. And that's often true. That's the difficulty with cynicism is how often it's rewarded. My friend Rob Bell often says that um, cynicism presents itself as wisdom because it is based on some experience. Cynicism is based on lived experience and it can seem more sophisticated or more learned or more aware than naivety. Go ahead. I'll look for it in the comments. Correct my pronunciation of naivety or naivete or whatever. Last week, what was it? 
uh, historicity. I think they said it was historicity, not historicity. <laughs> I'm not a pronouncer, guys. I'm a reader. Anyway, guys and girls and gender nonconforming people. You see, you're watching me work out my cognition live in front of everybody. <laughs> anyway, that means cynicism can be healthy. Some cynicism is healthy. Some skepticism is healthy. But too much is toxic. So ruminating on negative thoughts or wallowing in cynicism increases the risk and duration of depression. It reduces life satisfaction. It reduces sense, a sense of happiness or well-being. And some studies have even shown that chronic cynicism can increase the risk of dementia later in life. Cynicism is bad for your brain. So how do you combat cynicism? Well, I am a major cynic, or have been a major cynic. How did I combat it? By living the opposite. So I was cynical about, well, let's say pop music. I used to think pop music was vapid and meaningless. And then I listened to pop music with my daughters, and I saw the way that it lifted their spirits. I saw the way it became a celebration of life. And I realized that pop music has its place. And the answer to cynicism is context. Understanding that everything has its place. And understanding that although we've been hurt, that does not eliminate worthiness or merit or even dreams. The trick is to nurture a healthy optimism that is tempered by the cynicism that comes with experience. So to dream, but to dream wisely. To be optimistic, but to be guarded about it. To find some balance here is the way forward. So the trick is to not to destroy cynicism, but to learn its place. To understand that sometimes people are posturing. So what do you do about that? You accept people at face value until they give you reason to do otherwise, at which point you nod your head to cynicism and say you were right about that one. But that doesn't mean you're right about every one. Do you see the difference? It's easy to shut down and be cynical. What's difficult is on the other side of hurt, trauma, pain, loss, difficulty, is to reorient yourself and reacquaint yourself with beauty and hope anyway. But you may find on the other side is a life better than you had before the pain started. Our last question came in via email, and it reads, Hey Mike, I have a question about spiritual experiences and encounters. I'm frustrated. I'm a Christian turned atheist turned Christian agnostic of sorts. I want desperately to have a life of faith. I worship, I study the Bible, I read Rob Bell books, and heck, I even listen to the liturgists. I feel like there's a spiritual side to existence, even if it's perfectly explained through science. But in the back of my mind, I can't shake the suspicion that this is all pretty pointless that there probably isn't a God and I'm just falling back on what seems comfortable and safe due to the fact that I was raised in church. 
People who I trust to be sane, reasonable folks have claimed to have had experiences that have shaped and strengthened their beliefs. Sometimes it's a miraculous event, sometimes an auditory or visual message of some kind, but it's always something that would be an actual, tangible experience that they can hold on to. From what I've read and heard from you, I understand that you have also had an experience of some kind that deeply affected you. My question, quite simply, is what about the rest of us? Those of us who have had no meaningful encounters to make us believe there is anything going on under the hood. I know it sounds shallow and selfish, but are we doing something wrong? Are we missing something spiritual right underneath our noses, or is this simply how the cookie crumbles? Sorry if I rambled. Thanks for reading and all that you do. Well, first of all, I'm so sorry that you're feeling frustrated. Uh, That is difficult, especially on something as big as knowing or encountering God. And to some degree, I understand how you feel because I had a period of time where I desperately wanted to experience God and I was not able to. And shortly after I started telling my story, my experience with God to other people, this question started to come up. Why you and not me? What did you do to have an experience like that? Because I would do anything to experience God in such a real way, such an obvious way, such a powerful way. And that led me to the most intense period of deep scientific research I've ever done in my life. This is it. This is as deep as I've ever gone into science. I was looking for that answer. Why me? What happened to me? And why? That's when I started to learn so much about the human brain was trying to find an answer to that question. So let's talk about runners. (laughs) You didn't see that coming, did you? Let's talk about runners for a second. Let's imagine a guy named Tim. He's not real active. Uh, he's, He's 28. He's pretty thin, and Tim decides he's going to run a 5K, a 5K race, five kilometers. And Tim gets up three times a week uh, with no formal training regimen and just, you know, kind of runs pretty fast, sometimes tries to run really fast for 30 or 40 minutes. And Tim runs a 5K. And Tim comes in third place in his age bracket in, the, in this 5K, in his age and gender bracket. He comes in third place, his first 5K. And now let's imagine Sarah. And Sarah has been training for two years to run 5Ks. And the first 5K she ran took 60 minutes. And on this same 5K, 
she does a 28-minute 5K. She's so proud, and she's so happy. And then she hears about her friend Tim, who on his first 5K, and this guy is not a runner, comes in third, and she's so discouraged. Sarah is just heartbroken because she works so hard at running, and she loves running. Well, what happened? It turns out genetically, some people are faster runners than other people, that their muscles respond more quickly to training, that their uh, respiratory and circulatory systems are better at extracting oxygen from the air and delivering it to their muscles, and they're just faster runners. What does that mean for Sarah? Well, it means Sarah still took her time from 60 minutes to 28 minutes through practice and intention and focus, she cut her 5K time in half. Now, what does this have to do with spirituality? We are learning that some people are more genetically and naturally prone to spiritual experiences than others. There are genetic markers some of which are relatively clear. For example, the the oft-quoted God gene, this propensity of the body to produce a certain substance in the brain that uh, acts like a low-grade hallucinogen all the time. And people who have the high expressions of this gene tend to have all these spiritual experiences because their brains are prone for it. Or the telogen absorption scale. Some people score highly on this because of natural factors and and uh, their life experiences, and those people are also, what, more prone to have spiritual experiences. There is a nature component to how we experience God, but there is also a nurture experience. What we also see through science is anyone who prays and meditates six days a week feels closer to God, reports feeling closer to God and is more likely to have those kinds of experiences. So whether you are a naturally fast runner like Tim, or it doesn't come as naturally, but you work out like Sarah, everyone can run faster, and everyone can get deeper in spiritual practice if they put the effort into it. So you should not get discouraged when you compare yourselves to others who are of different makeup and temperament, because your journey is your journey. It's not a competition. It's not a race. And if experiencing God matters to you, the best way to increase your propensity to have experiences like that is to pray often, to have an open posture, to participate in communal worship, to surround yourself people socially who believe in God and are prone to have those kind of experiences That's what science tells us is most likely to help you have one of those experiences. Now, earlier in your question, you said you feel that there probably isn't a God and you're just falling back on what seemed comfortable. Well, if you've followed my work at all, uh, (laughs) think about how you're using that word God. Maybe you have too many expectations attached to the word God. Maybe you have too specific a meaning for God in mind. And you need to let go of that in order to move forward. I don't spend a lot of time worrying that there might not be a God. 
because of how I define God, it's actually unimaginable that there is no God. <laughs> there is, we're here. We came from something. That which we came from is God, right? That's, I, don't, I don't mix words. I don't mess around with it. We're here. There's a God. It's that simple to me. Now, this gets into all kind of weird stuff about what we experience and voices and revelation. And, well, that's why I wrote a book about it. Honestly, um, I can't answer a question like this well in five minutes and 30 minutes and 60 minutes. So I wrote 225 pages about it. Uh, So I hate to do the book pitch at the end of an answer. But honestly, this is why I wrote the book was for this question more than any other So uh, I'll have a link to my book, Finding God in the Waves, in the show notes this week on AskScienceMike.com. And um, I'd love to take you through the science behind uh, why people experience God, what God is, and how you can be more likely to experience God in depth in the chapters of the book, especially the second half of the book called God and Science. Uh, but it's a really great question. I totally, totally understand your feelings and your frustrations. I hope, like Sarah, you learn to cut your time in half. Well, that's another episode of Ask Science Mike in the books. Send me your questions. Go to AskScienceMike.com, scroll down. You can type a question and email it in. You can record a question and drop it in our, our voicemail inbox. And either way... We'll consider it for inclusion on the show. The show's questions come from our patrons on Patreon. So if you would not only like to make Ask Science Mike financially possible and viable, and thank you so much to those of you who do, but you'd like to actually start picking the questions for the show, just go to AskScienceMike.com, click on the Patreon button, and you can become one of my patrons and uh, have a a hand in picking the questions that actually make it on the show. Now, if, you, if you're broke, I get it. I'm broke a lot. I know the feeling. But you still want to help the show, tweet out an episode, just an episode you enjoyed, or go to iTunes and give me a rating. Those, those five-star ratings really help people find the program and help the rankings on iTunes as well. I want to thank Andrew Golucky for his work uh, pre-producing the show. Also, uh, for facilitating together. Uh, we've got groups now called Together where we're city by city helping people find each other. You can learn about that at uh, AskScienceMike.com as well. Just look for the little Together icon. And I want to thank Greg Nordine for his work producing the show and making it sound so super awesome every week. And our theme song is by my boy Jeb Botterford. If you need some podcast music, he can help you out. You can find Andrew, Greg, and Jeb in the show notes at AskScienceMike.com. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I will see you next week.